Hello, and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast, coming to you from Casa de Quinn and 11.11 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Matt Haver. And I'm Greg Heilman. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week, we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K. Today is Friday, December 10th. Welcome to episode 55 and the second half of our interview with author and commentator Richard Barrios. Richard's book with TCM, Must See Musicals, 50 Show-Stopping Movies We Can't Forget, was released in 2017 and spans nine decades of the most memorable songs, dazzling dancing, and brightest stars ever to grace the silver screen. We hope you had a chance to catch episode 54 because if you love movie musicals as much as we do, you don't want to miss a minute with Richard. Something else you don't want to miss is a visit from another one of our friends you can catch on TCM, Jeremy Arnold. Jeremy will join us live for A Classic Christmas, coming up on December 18th at the Historic Roxy Theater. Jeremy is the author of Christmas in the Movies, 30 Classics to Celebrate the Season, and will join us on stage for an in-depth introduction to the evening's feature, It's a Wonderful Life, which plays at 7. There's also going to be a matinee showing of White Christmas, a holiday bites and wine reception, and a special virtual Christmas message from Zuzu herself, Carolyn Grimes. Get your info and tickets now at roxybremerton.org and keep an eye on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages for your chance to win a pair of tickets to this very special Christmas event. And some tickets you should definitely go out and purchase are to be found at lesserknownplayers.org. This holiday season, the players present Seasonal Allergies, directed and produced by our friends Christiane Jacobson and Gary Fetterplace, starring a cast of local favorites. I took the show in last weekend, and you can find and share my review on our Facebook page. Seasonal Allergies plays at Bainbridge Island's Rolling Bay Hall through December 19th, so laugh away your throat tickle and clear your sinuses with a healthy dose of holiday fun with the lesser-known players. And if you fancy a second trip to Bainbridge Island, why not kick off the holiday break with Bainbridge Ballet's all-new production of The Nutcracker? Directed by another of our friends, Scott Breitbarth, who also did choreography and runs projections, the show features swing, silent movies, and the classic Candyland we all love. And it runs December 17th through 20th at Bainbridge High School. Get more info and tickets at BainbridgeBallet.com. And even closer to home in Port Orchard, Western Washington Center for the Arts presents their holiday variety show, which runs through December 19th. Check out a review of the show, available now on our Facebook page, and then pick up tickets at www.ca.us and enjoy an entertaining evening of singing, dancing, and festive performances, sure to put you in the Christmas spirit. And make sure to visit our YouTube channel for our latest installment of Get to Know a Theater. In this episode, we feature Renton Civic Theater and an interview with Managing Artistic Director Bill Holes. Formerly a movie theater, Renton Civic opened in 1987 and has become a well-loved destination for the arts in Renton. For our friends on the east side of the sound, check out Greg's review, yep, he's been awfully busy, of their currently running production of the holiday classic It's a Wonderful Life. Tickets and info at rentoncivictheater.org. Music is such a big part of the holiday season, and holiday musicals are one of the first places many of us turn to to get into the Christmas spirit. White Christmas, Holiday Inn, Meet Me in St. Louis, movies like these hold a special place in our hearts, and when we want to learn more about classic films like these, we turn to TCM. Richard Barrios is the author of several books, including two for TCM, West Side Story, The Jets, The Sharks, and The Making of a Classic, and Must See Musicals, 50 Show-Stopping Movies We Can't Forget. And this week he's back for more about, to quote his book, this fabulous and fascinating, if sometimes peculiar, body of work. Richard is also the author of Screened Out, Playing Gay in Hollywood from Edison to Stonewall, Dangerous Rhythm, Why Movie Musicals Matter, A Song in the Dark, The Birth of the Musical Film, which was awarded the Theater Library Association Prize, and he has lectured and presented films at the Smithsonian, the American Film Institute, and the Film Forum, written articles for the New York Times, appeared in numerous documentary films, and contributed audio commentaries to DVD and Blu-ray releases. 
A native of Louisiana, Richard joined us from his home in New Jersey. Enjoy part two of our interview. We're lucky out here in Seattle to have some uh, extraordinary uh, theaters, and one of them is the Fifth Avenue. The Fifth Ave has debuted musicals, including Hairspray, and most recently, the one the show that I saw most recently there before COVID was Mrs. Doubtfire the Musical. This is one of my favorite movies of all time, and I went in a little bit hesitant. What are they going to do with it? And I was blown away. It was I was so impressed. I went back a second time. Are there any uh, stage productions that you've seen that have been taken from films that you enjoy? Uh, certainly the, the stage version of Hairspray. And I saw it on Broadway very early in the run after the really terrific reviews had, had come out. And I very seldom have ever seen that high sustained an energy level by a cast. It was incredible. And they just, there was one sort of low, low mo- lower moment of where the energy flagged, but the rest of it, they, and I liked the movie. I, I like John Waters generally. The show really did find a good way to, to, to put the music in and, and, and create something viable. When it came time to film the Broadway version, that wasn't as much of a success. Part of that had to do with Travolta, who I thought didn't that didn't work too well. But but it it it, it did have some very good moments in it as well. Well, we talked about La La Land. You had mentioned both in your intro at at the Roxy, and earlier about Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, and the fact that Emma Stone sang on camera and Ryan Gosling learned to play jazz piano, which gave it a sense of accessibility. Yeah, and immediacy, sure, sure. I wanted to talk to you about something that is kind of polar opposite to that, and that is dubbing. I know with My Fair Lady, it's it's common knowledge that uh, while Audrey Hepburn had recorded vocals for the songs in My Fair Lady, her voice wasn't used as the, as the singing voice of the character. And I thought that was kind of a one-off or maybe happened once or twice, but it seems like... No, it's happened a lot. Why, why was that? Why, why did they do that? Was it that they wanted the star power for the actor or actress, but they wanted just a, a different singing voice? Yeah, yeah. And, of course, I had to deal with that a lot writing about West Side Story because West Side Story is plenty dubbed out of all the... Uh, the five leads, George Takiris is the only one who does all his own singing. Rita does most of hers, but not all. And Tamblyn found himself dubbed at one point, too. That had to do with the associate producer, who was also the music supervisor, uh, Saul Chaplin, who also did Sound of Music and a number of other major films, uh, major musicals. And he was of that school that started actually way back as far back as 1929 when you know the technology was so primitive that they actually had to have the voice double singing on the set like off camera while an actor on camera would you know move his or her her lips it's this quest for a kind of perfection uh, or perceived perfection, let's call it. And it's too bad that it, it it got to be as prevalent as it was. 
and there were singers, uh, actors who did work hard on their vocals and then found them taken away from them after they recorded them. Uh, Ava Gardner in Showboat was was one, and she was really mad at MGM and said a lot of unprintable things about what they did uh, as far as taking away her vocals. And she was very proud that they did her vocals did go out on the soundtrack album and that she got uh, royalties. So she thought that was nice. But uh, they did that a lot. And it was just this quest for perfection. But really, a lot of the time, this, they would have been good enough singers if the, the technology had been a little better just to give, give the voices a little more maybe body or something like that. I think it would have worked. Not to the extent that Tom Cruise got in Rock of Ages, where his voice has been auto-tuned so much that it it, it, it it could be coming out of the floorboards for you know for all we know because it's so it's so impersonal. But um, Natalie Wood in West Side Story, uh, she was livid. Uh, that's why she never really cared for the movie later on was that she was livid that she had worked on the vocals and had recorded them. And basically, even though she had done them, they knew, Chaplin knew that they were probably going to replace her. And I think she was a good enough singer that they could have enhanced her voice uh, in, in places and it would have worked. But they didn't want to do that because it was such a tradition. I mentioned South Pacific earlier. That movie is dubbed out the yin yang is just yeah and there's so many so many uh examples of that and that's why they made such a big deal in part with the film of les mis that it wasn't only everybody doing their own singing but that they were doing it singing live but that had been done occasionally barbara streisand at the end of uh funny girl when she sings my man she did that live on the set, so it did happen occasionally. There's a certain genuineness, is that a word, that you, you get? Um, I remember watching Greatest Showman and reading that the woman who sings Never Enough was actually dubbed. It wasn't, it wasn't her, and I thought that was you know, a little bit disappointing. But I think on the other end of the spectrum, I saw a documentary on the making of Frozen 2, and Jonathan Groff has a hilarious song in their kind of an 80s throwback montage song that I found what or I learned how they did that was he had a we'll say a hundred takes uh, of recording the song mm -hmm. they went note by note and took the best note from yep. each measure of the song and created this perfect to your point perfect version of, of the song yep. I mean the song sounds great but it just seems not quite as genuine when you do things like that Again, I would say it's sort of a case-by-case -case thing. The pioneer for that technique that you just mentioned from Jonathan Groff and Frozen, too, um, that came in the mid-50s with the movie of Oklahoma. And Gloria Graham played Ado Annie, and she could not sing a note. But they, at that time, obviously Saul Chaplin was not working on the movie, uh, they wanted to use her voice, and Gloria Graham did have a very distinctive speaking voice. 
And that's what they did. And it was just little bitty tiny pieces of take after take after take after take. And it sounds seamless and it's totally delightful. And it does have that conviction that sometimes you don't always get because she's such an idiosyncratic performer. It works. The movie of Gypsy, Rosalind Russell tried doing her own singing and most of her, her vocals were, were then dubbed. But at the end when she does Rose's turn, part of it's her and part of it's the dubber. So they kind of mix it up. Things like, you know, they could do things like that. Well, we spoke about Audrey Hepburn a few moments ago. Uh, another unmistakable voice from that same era is obviously Julie Andrews. Uh, probably one of the earliest musicals that most of us saw as children uh, from Walt Disney, Mary Poppins. Now, uh, from what we understand, there was a little bit of a controversy about the casting for My Fair Lady. Julie Andrews having starred in the role of Eliza Doolittle famously on Broadway. We'd read that there was some issues with a pregnancy. Walt Disney put Mary Poppins on hold. That type of... Can you give us a little background on that controversy and how that all shook out, how the actors reacted to that? Um, it wasn't a little controversy. It was a huge controversy. And what it was more than anything was Warner Brothers was producing My Fair Lady and had spent far more for the property just before the filming and the production uh, more than almost any other musical film had ever cost just to buy the rights for the, you know, to, to film it. Wow. And so there was an enormous investment. It was one of the two most expensive movies shot in the United States at that time. And so Julie Andrews had not appeared in any films. And Audrey Hepburn was a time-tested name. She was a bona fide movie star. And people have been ruling that for years, but that is what that's what they they went they went with the money name and audrey hepburn herself later told julie andrews that she should have turned it down but they offered her so much money that you know and then it's another case of where she did record this the songs herself and and then and then they were found to be wanting and it was dubbed uh, Leslie Caron Gigi is another example of that. And, and, and Rosalind Russell in Gypsy. Christopher Plummer in The Sound of Music. He really tried to sing Edelweiss for himself, in the, and then finally they dubbed him. So it, it, it happens a lot. It used to happen a lot. But um, the, uh, when My Fair Lady came out, people did get the sense that there were two performances going on. Well, three in a way. You had Audrey Hepburn in the movie. Then you had Marnie Nixon singing, and which didn't always sound like it should be coming out of Audrey Hepburn's mouth. And then you had the spirit of Julie Andrews kind of floating you know, over the screen. So it was like a, a tripartite uh, uh, performance. When someone so iconic as Julie Andrews, I remember watching i think i think it was the first nbc musical live thing when they did sound of music and i remember in my head first thinking all right i'm going to compare this to julie andrews because how can you not i know you have to separate them but it gets it's difficult oh yeah oh yeah imagine trying to see the king and i 
with someone other than Yul Brenner. You know, again, there's is the iconic nature of it. Well, speaking of Julie Andrews, I did think, uh, oh, what's her name? Emma? Emily Blunt. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and I thought she did a really, really good job and, you know, made it enough of hers. But of course, it helped that it was a sequel, not a remake. So it wasn't. But but she's such a, you know, she's such a good performer that it worked. People, you know, people did not know Julie Andrews that much uh, when the sound, when the My Fair Lady was on the on the drawing board. Disney didn't care as much because Disney, you know, Disney was the star of his movies more than any performers were. And he was able to go with the right performer in the right role. And of course, Julie Andrews ended up being nominated for and winning most of the acting prizes that year, and Audrey Hepburn was not. And there was a legend about, did this really happen? And sure enough, you can go on YouTube and see it. When Julie Andrews got the Golden Globe Award, at the end of her speech, she thanked Jack L. Warner for making it all possible because he hadn't hired her for uh, My Fair Lady. And it was it was a classy way to be, you know, to do something that might be a little witchy in other hands. But Julie Andrews has so much class still that, you know, she could pull it off. Well, your book, Must See Musicals, starts in 1929 with the Broadway me uh, melody, kind of at the dawn of the talkie, and you wrap up with La La Land and cover everything in between. Uh, La La Land with songs from Pasek and Paul um, and Mandy Moore's choreography. Since then, we've had In the Heights. Uh, we've had what, the remake of West Side Story. We had now Tick, Tick, Boom. And it keeps going. What is it about the musical that keeps bringing people out to see him that has made it such a, an endearing part of our kind of cinematic history? I... I think the way, and you know, I'm I'm kind of repeating myself here from what I've written, but I think the thing about musicals is the way they make dreams come true in in a, in a way. They make the impossible seem real, and they do it in a different way than you know the superhero movies with you know the impossible feats and all that. Singing is a very kind of personal act, and uh, and so is dancing, really. So they they communicate that to us, and it's sort of a direct thing. And yeah, they can do the spectacle really, really well too. But at the end of it, it's about a performer's relationship with a spectator, as affected through music and and movement. And you hope that there's also a good script in there, too. That brings up Singing in the Rain, which is the prime example for me of a movie where the script is every bit as good as the songs and the dances. And boy, that doesn't always happen. But there it did. That's one of my favorites. And as someone who isn't naturally drawn to musicals, it hasn't been in the past, I think that's going to change in my future. But could you uh, give me a little curriculum maybe your top three, top five films for a newbie to go out and watch to get an education in the musical. And like you said, maybe it's not the, the big names out there. I've seen a few of those, but what are a few that, that someone like myself could go out and watch and, and to really learn and get a good feel for American musicals? One I would suggest 
is, and it's naturally it's in the book, is Love Me Tonight, which is not many people know it these days because it's from nearly 90 years ago, but it's a brilliant original musical uh, starring Marie Chevalier and Jeanette McDonald, directed by one of the best directors, not just of musicals, but of any kind of genres, uh, Ruben Mamoulian, with songs by Rodgers and Hart. It's fantastic to think that they were able to do something that clever that many years ago is, is, is a little mind boggling. But uh, so that's definitely one. Singing in the Rain is a good introduction. And the thing I love maybe the most about it, besides uh, Gene Hagen as Lena Lamont, is uh, the way that it, the complete, uh, the way it completely finishes the circle. It's a movie musicals, a movie musical about how movie musicals came to be. So it, it, it does the complete 360 that way. And I think that's just brilliant that the greatest in some estimations of all musicals is about movie musicals and how they how they happen. I love that. And Cabaret, I think, is 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 just outstanding in, in every in every way. I once was asked to give a top 10 and I had those three in there and I had a, I, I had a few others. My favorite movie, and I get asked a lot, is, is The Wizard of Oz. And, you know, we've been taking it for granted for up to gazillion years because it's always been there. But if you look at it in terms of it being a musical, the way the, mu the, the music is brought into it, that's really, really clever and uh, uh, really, really works well. Besides having uh, several of the best performers who, who ever appeared on film. All right, I got my list. <laughs> well, the book the book is Must See Musicals, 50 Show-Stopping Movies We Can't Forget. Uh, our guest has been Richard Barrios. Richard, before we let you go, just a couple more things. What's next for you, and where can people go and find your books and learn more about your work? I'll answer the second question first. Go on Amazon. I'm, I'm all over Amazon. Uh, I, have, I have five books on there. Write in my name and... Uh, there is another Richard Barrios who does not write about film and writes about other things, but Richard Barrios' West Side Story, or you know, you can start there and it'll cross-reference me. And uh, please, uh, I love, I love film and I love writing about film, and um, I love doing shows like this too, by the way. And as you said, I'm pretty passionate about it, and for me. The fun is getting my love for the genre and for film to be able to sock that across to, to the reader. And I like doing that a lot. Uh, there have been a couple of critics who sometimes say I overdo it, but uh, or, or, or that I, the ones that are bad that I, I, I'm, I'm really too hard on. I love what, what one critic said about my... Uh, what I wrote, he said, uh, I wouldn't want to get on his bad side. And I, I really appreciate I, I liked it so much I had a T-shirt made, don't get on my bad side. Um, and I'm working on a book right now. Uh, I was approached uh, by my wonderful editor at Oxford University Press, where I've already done two books. And um, they are doing a series of books called An Opinionated Guide 
And uh, in fact, one of the first ones that was done was about Mr. Sondheim and by a, a terrific writer, Ethan Morton. So they um, asked me, did, did I want, do I want to do an opinionated guide to somebody? And I said, sure. So I am doing an opinionated guide to Marilyn Monroe. Oh, fantastic. That's going on right now. And um, so I get to write about musicals a lot. And if, uh, if, if you've never seen the movie, there's no business like show business. It's like taking drugs. <laughs> <laughs> it's cuckoo. How about social media? Facebook, mainly. I'm, I'm an old fogey. And uh, you, can, you can find me on Facebook. I have a musicals page and my regular Facebook posting. Significant events I will update on and, and, uh, and any appearances. And like uh, the last couple of times I did uh, uh, audio commentaries for, for Blu-rays and that sort of thing, I always put, put that on there. And I even post my reviews uh, if they're good. Well, fantastic. Well, we appreciate you making time for us. We enjoyed your introduction. Uh, your passion for the genre really comes across not only in your commentaries, but your writing. And we will link and share and tag uh, so that all of our listeners can find you. And uh, fantastic Christmas ideas, folks, for movie and musical lovers out there. So, Richard Barrios, thanks so much for your time. And uh, happy late Thanksgiving and early happy holidays. You too. You too. Thank you so much. It's been a, a, a real blast doing it. I really like it. Thank you. Another big thank you to our guest, Richard Barrios. You can keep up with Richard's writing and upcoming projects on Twitter and Facebook, and you can pick up copies of his books for all the musical lovers on your Christmas list at shop.dcm.com and, of course, on Amazon. And a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to all of our friends, guests, and listeners. We'll be stepping away from the mic for a few weeks to enjoy the season with our families, but keep up with us on social media throughout the rest of 2021 and watch for our annual Christmas episode of In The Mix coming soon to our YouTube channel. Happy holidays, and as always, thank you for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman & Haver.